Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3. Uh, when you choose a book of the Bible to preach on, uh, you don't typically look ahead and say, um, let's find one that has all the most awkward names to read. And yet, nevertheless, there we are. Uh, and so this morning, as we work our way down through uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, I'm going to work very, very hard to not butcher uh, a number of names and locations and places, um, none of which are familiar to us. And yet all these folks show up here in this text. Uh, and we'll read down through the entirety of the chapter here in just a few moments. Um, but we're going to start by just trying to build the stage for what's going on here. Uh, a really quick brief overview is the chapter contains some 50, um, and depends on how you number them, uh, they are leaders, so at least 50 leaders uh, who build the wall. And essentially the chapter flows that way. So-and-so built here in this location, and they built next to this person, who built here in this location, who built next to this person. It's taken right from the journals of Nehemiah. It's exactly his thoughts, his ideas. And so as he would have ridden around the city, as he would have surveyed what's going on, uh, he was taking careful notes in this organizational way, knowing exactly where everyone is at and what they're doing. But I want to start with the concept, though, of, of what are they doing? Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, obviously, on the surface, they are rebuilding walls. But why are they doing it, and what is its real purpose, and what is it really serving? And so some would may want to make the argument and say, well, that's all it is. It's building a city wall, um, and it's now going to protect them. But there's a couple of things that when you read carefully uh, through the text of Scripture and through this chapter might stand out to you. Well, if it's for their protection, why is it are there people from at least three different cities from 8 to 15 miles away that travel and spend two months helping them? It doesn't serve them. Uh, it actually puts them at greater risk by rebuilding the city walls. Well, it's for the protection of those in the city. Well, there are people already functioning, as we'll see in just a minute, as goldsmiths and perfumers and merchants, and they're able to function just fine without these city walls. It actually, again, puts them at greater risk. And, and so the reality is, uh, maybe the best way for you to think of it is this is ministry. <laughs> they are being busy about God's work. And so I think maybe another way to help us set the stage that is if we fast forward about 500 years. About 500 years in the future from this time with Nehemiah, Jesus shows up. And his story is largely told, as we know, uh, as most of us may know this morning, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the, each of the Gospels is really an extended sermon. Um, they, they are written much more like a, a sermon than it is a biography. Uh, lots is left out. Uh, timeline events, when you compare the Gospels, sometimes seems off. And, and that's actually one of the things that critics will say about the Bible. See, this doesn't match, and so you can't trust it. And it's because they don't understand the genre at all. Uh, that would be like picking up a history book out of the library and saying, uh, th this is a terrible book, you can't trust it, it doesn't tell you all the details of Ronald Reagan. And we would say, well, that's not the point of the book. Uh, conversely, if you picked up a biography of Ronald Reagan, you might be mad that it doesn't do a deep dive necessarily just into Iran-Contra, which was one part of his presidency. And it's because you wouldn't understand the genre. The genre of Gospels are sermons. They are sermons intended to preach the life of Christ. And so, like a preacher, they put illustrations in, and they use points of Christ's life to emphasize, and they're structured in a particular way. Well, one of those is the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, he's the last one written, and he really writes his to fill in the blanks. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them the synoptic gospel, something like 80% plus is the same material. And so John is the last one to write. He's the last of the apostles before he dies. An elderly man um, sent away to Patmos to die and uh, ostracized. And, and so he looks and he says, you know what, there's some things they haven't included. I want to include those things. So John sits down and writes his sermon, his gospel, to fill in the blanks. And so John writes very thematically. One of the themes of John's gospel is the theme of light. Shows up in the first verses about Christ being the light of the world. And, and light becomes this dominant 
uh, motif throughout all the Gospel of John. And you could actually do a personal study just on the word light. It shows up 24 times in the Gospel of John. And it finds, though, its climactic moment right about in the middle of the book in John chapter 8. And there's this moment when Jesus is there in Jerusalem with his disciples, and he is at the feast or festival of booths, or Sukkot, as they would call it. And there's lots of traditions uh, that, they would, that they would do and rituals they would perform. Uh, there would be the water libation ceremony. And at the end of it, though, the, the peak moment of it was the last night and day. And the last night, they would light these candelabras that stood in the woman. It's called the Courtyard of the Women. And it's called that because women could enter into that courtyard. And uh, there was a courtyard of the Gentiles where they could come. And then there was uh, about a four and a half, five foot wall that separated the courtyard of the Gentiles from the courtyard of the women. And there was another wall that separated it from the courtyard of the men. And so they would celebrate in the courtyard of the women. And they had these four pillars that stood in the center of the courtyard, some 75 feet tall, with these massive basins on top. And then... At the festival, and so it was common they would light these, but then at the festival of, of booze, they would set up all these other candelabras all over this courtyard. And it would be packed with the priests and the people, uh, just literally thousands upon thousands of people would gather and cram into the courtyard, cram into the surrounding area. Uh, the steps there that ascended up from the courtyard of the women is where they would the Levites would gather like a choir and they would sing uh, the songs or psalms of ascents. If you're ever reading through your Bible and you read through the psalms and you say this is a psalm of ascent or song of ascent, those are the ones they would that would literally be their hymnal that they would sing from their psalter on these steps and so they'd be singing. And so when the night was coming of the last night of the festival, the priests would tear off. Uh, the bottom of their robes, and it would kind of be like you get new clothes after this, and they would tear the bottom of the robes, and these would be used as wicks. And all the young priests, um, they, would, they would start climbing these 75-foot-tall ladders. That's, that's pretty high, right? Uh, typical story is about 10 feet, so about a seven-story building. You can imagine climbing up a ladder made back then. That, that is a younger, foolish man job, right? So they climbed this, and they would light these, and they would light all the candelabras, it was said because Jerusalem sits at the highest point of the city and the, or the, on a hilltop. That's why they would always talk about going up to Jerusalem. It was never a north, south, east, west thing. It was going up because you're going up the mountain. And the Temple Mount sat on the highest point. It was said that when they would light the, these candelabras and all these candles, that every courtyard in Jerusalem was lit by the glow of this. It was just an amazing sight. So for miles and miles around, you would have what would amount to a glowing city in the distance. And so Jesus is there with his disciples, and it says he's in the treasury, and the treasury was the buildings that surrounded it. And for the Festival of Booze, they actually would build these balconies out from it, multiple feet on all sides, to just accommodate as many people as possible. And at this point, when they began to light these, the flames started to go up, and it's just this... Uh, otherworldly glow began to happen. It was said that there would be a hush that would fall at this moment. All the singing, all the cacophony would stop. And they were, they were looking forward to it because it was an all-night praise party that was about to happen. And it was at this moment of deafening silence that Jesus calls out from the treasury, I am the light of the world. And it gets an immediate reaction. The Pharisees quickly begin to react to this. Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. And so we begin to understand in the Gospel of John when he talks about it being dark and then the light of the world comes into this darkness. You know, we Sundays... Are, are a day of respite, but we live in a dark world, don't we? Uh, <laughs> our local news is filled with a court case of whether or not a man shot his wife and his son who's admitted to stealing millions. That we're a one-year anniversary from a horrific war happening in Eastern Europe. 
We're a few weeks removed from terrible earthquakes that have killed thousands. We have all of our own personal trials, financially, relationally, physically, emotionally. We live in a dark world. And so when Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world, he has come that he might deliver us from the darkness of sin and ultimate deliverance one day in eternity. It's a glorious truth. And yet Jesus then leaves. And he actually makes a point, and again, uh, if you were to read through the rest of the Gospel of John and study through this motif of light, Jesus talks about, uh, if you will leave your darkness and follow me, you'll have light. He emphasizes at one point by curing or healing a blind man shortly after these events in John chapter 8. So it's a symbol of when you get saved, you go from being in the darkness of your sin to God gives you eyes that you may see. And you see the light, and now you can walk in the light. But then Jesus dies, and he leaves. But we understand that God is intent on keeping on shining light into darkness to point others to himself. The festival of booze and this night of light lighting is kind of the the preeminent picture of the Old Testament purpose of God's people, which was come and see. The world was intended to come and see a place where people love their neighbors and care for the widows and orphans of this world and the dispossessed, uh, where land is restored and people are holy and they worship God. And it was supposed to be this shining symbol of come and see. We capture it, maybe best in the song we teach children, this little light of mine. Jesus makes it very, very plain that even as he leaves this world, his followers are intended to be light bearers. We're intended to be lights in this very dark world. He says it this way, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. About 450 to 500 years before Jesus stood in the courtyard saying, I am the light of the world. On another very dark night, Nehemiah rode around that city. Surveying the broken down walls. This destroyed city of God. No real city, no real definable border. Culture destroyed. And so as we ended Nehemiah 2 a few weeks ago, Nehemiah makes an appeal to the people of Israel in Nehemiah 2, 17 through 18, and he says this, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. The reality is this. These guys weren't just building a wall. They weren't building for economic reasons. They they weren't building for physical reasons. They were building for God. They were on mission for God's glory, not their own. The fact of the matter is, uh, Nehemiah chapter 3 serves as a glorious picture of what it's like to do ministry. God has always intended, whether it's the physical city of Jerusalem to be the light of the world, or more prominently, your life and mine, he has always intended to have a place where people could come and see the glorious light of Christ. And so, yeah, Nehemiah is setting the stage for it to be the physical location of Jerusalem, not even knowing what's going to happen 500 years later for Jesus to be able to make this declaration. But Jesus made a command, a declaration to us that we are to be the kind of Jerusalems where people see the good works of God and glorify him. It's all about doing ministry. And what we can learn from Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning is that ministry is a community project of gospel light. It's it's never lone wolfing it. We are not an island unto ourselves as we do ministry. And Nehemiah 3 can teach us so much about ministry in a chapter that is just full of lots of hard to pronounce names 
And it seems like just a construction overview. There's much more there for us this morning. And so let's actually begin with the foundation. The foundation of it, and it really has to be humility. So if we look at what's going on here, there is wall and ministry construction. Some 50 individuals or groups listed and participating building the wall. Uh, on a very basic level, they're sifting through the rubble. Uh, they're picking up broken down stones. They're setting them up. Uh, archaeologists have finally discovered some of the remnants of Nehemiah's wall. Uh, and the reason I say remnants is because all the other walls have been built on top of it. Uh, and so not a lot of archaeological work happens in Jerusalem proper because of the people that live there as well as the conflict between the Muslims and the Jewish state. Uh, but they have discovered it. And they have found what is obviously a hastily and yet incredibly well-built wall. Uh, they say hastily because it has some mortar in its joints, but lots more has small rocks that have been fit in. There are, there are stones that have been obviously have experienced intense heat and fire, uh, and yet they were then put back into place. They can see where stones have been broken apart, and yet they've been fitted now back together. Uh, as Nehemiah goes down through the chapter, you might be wondering, because you'll hear in just a few minutes when we read down through it, you'll hear all these names of these gates. The problem that we have, in all honesty, is we're not exactly sure where each of those gates are at. Because so much change has happened over the last several thousand, we're going back 2,500 years at this point. And so this is kind of a best guess for that. What is obvious, what we would agree on, is Nehemiah roughly starts it on a clock at the 12 o'clock position and makes his way counterclockwise around the entire city. He probably starts at the 12 o'clock because that's where the temple is and that's where the priests were doing their primary building work. Just so you know more about these walls, it's about two and a half miles of wall that had to be built. They're about eight feet wide and about 40 feet tall. So these are massive city walls. This is, this is not just your backyard fence. Uh, this is going to be intense work, hard work, uh, labor intensive, taking lots and lots of sweat equity to get it done. Physically, these guys build these walls. Um, we understand from the way they would build walls, it's not just stone work, that there would have been timbers interspersed into the walls. They then use those to build out for houses. Uh, there would have been the setting of gates. And so you, you've got you've to set the, the frames for these gates, hang the gates, just lots and lots of work going on here, sawing, banging uh, for, for almost two solid months around the entire city. Physically, they're building walls on a deeper level. On a deeper level, they're reestablishing the community of God's people. This city was conquered by David years before, taken over by him and established to be the city of God. The tabernacle was there, and then eventually Solomon builds the temple. Now this is the rebuilt temple. But what about ministry? Well, we already begun to understand that Nehemiah's appeal to them to build was all about God's name and his glory. It wasn't about their city. It was about the fact that God is being mocked over what has happened. That how can he be a powerful God? How can he be a good God? How can he be a loving God if his people and his city are destroyed? And so their motive here is not self, it's not, it's not financial, it's God's glory. And so they come from near and from far, they lay down their own economic means, they stop work on their own businesses, just so that they can do what God would have them to do. And so how can we understand it? Well, let me just give you a definition of ministry. And there's so many ways that we could try to define it. I I think it might be helpful this morning to just give us maybe a one-sentence takeaway. And it's ministry is anything that builds or serves in God's kingdom. Literally anything that builds or serves in God's kingdom. And so if you think of the city, uh, who was doing the ministry of the walls? Well, obviously all these guys that are actually doing the physical work, but does that take away from the people that were feeding them every day? Or does that take away from the folks that have given up some of their property for these men that have traveled, some from 15 miles away, which is significant in their day, to live there for a few months and to build? And so it's anything, ministry is anything that works in, that builds or serves in God's kingdom. Ministry is generosity. 
Ministry is serving, making a meal, teaching, working in the, in the nursery, evangelizing, visiting someone, sending a care package, writing a note to someone, seeing them in the hospital, praying for others, organizing, leading, playing an instrument, cutting the grass, serving as a deacon, giving, and on and on and on. Running the sound booth, helping with the website, sending out emails, straightening chairs, inviting your neighbor to church, handing someone charity who is in need. Ministry is anything, anything that serves in or builds God's kingdom physically, time-wise, financially, and emotionally. Ministry is giving of yourself for the building of or serving in God's kingdom. There's no ministry that is diminished. Jesus tells us in the New Testament that even a cup of cold water in his name will be richly rewarded in heaven. There's no small ministry. To say there's small ministry would be to say there's small glory for God. There is none. So ministry is anything this way. And so, so how do we get to the root of it then? Well, if you're going to rebuild a wall, you have to get to a strong base. I'll never forget a gentleman I, I knew. Uh, he had, had a construction business, a rebuilding business, and he was doing work for somebody down on the coast uh, because they noticed all these cracks in their house were starting to appear. And so he went under the house, had a large, uh, uh, well, not even really a crawl space. It was one of those that was built up on piers. And so he went to one of the piers and he kept digging down and dug down. Uh, and he dug down to the bottom of the pier. And he could not find a foundation. And so he dug further, and he realized that while this house had been built on piers, and they'd sunk the piers about four feet into the ground, they had put no rock underneath them at all. Literally, it was a house built on sand. And so to repair it is to go pier by pier, and, and so everything else can hopefully support the way of the house, and put foundation underneath it, and then build it back up. If you're going to rebuild a wall, these city walls, you can imagine the layer of rubble of an 8-foot thick, 40-foot high wall. That's why at one point earlier when Nehemiah rode around and it was the terraced areas on the south side of the city that when the walls had been broken down, they literally wiped everything out along the terraces and he couldn't even ride his donkey around it. And so they're having to get, you got to get down to the foundation before you can ever start building anything up. And so... They, they are getting the foundation ready. They're getting it set. But like anything, if we think about ministry this way, we want to get to the real root of what goes on the hearts of people when they do ministry. I would hope that we would all understand that why we do ministry is actually even more important than what we do. The root, the driving, the motives of why we do what we do, matters. Jesus actually makes this very clear in his Sermon on the Mount when he says there will come a day in his judgment seat when people will appear before him and they will list off all the things they did. Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not taught in your name? Have we not preached in your name? Have we not healed in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me into everlasting wick. I never knew you. And he goes on to make it very, very clear that the people who know and love Jesus, get this, obey Jesus. Why we do what we do matters far more even than what we do. Now, our flesh, your flesh, my flesh, and the lives of Satan are insipid. And so there's lots and lots of times we'll have an opportunity to do ministry. There's ministry in front of us that we should do. And we're like, I'm not sure I would do that for the right motive. I better not do it. Oh, how spiritual we are. And so when we start thinking about why we do what we do, and we live in a world where, where motives can feel very confusing. It's like, you know, I took my, way, my wife away to Asheville last weekend. It was super fun. It's like all these hippies live in Asheville. I don't know if you've ever been to Asheville. It's like hippie town, right? So it's kind of funny, right? Um, you walk around the streets, you're going to smell some funny things. Just going to be honest with you. Some of you will not even know what you're smelling. That's good for you. Others of us will know what we're smelling. And I'm like, wow, this is an interesting place. 
Well, I don't know. Did I take my wife to Grove Park Inn for the Friday seafood buffet? <laughs> because I love my wife or because I like for her to be happy with me and love me? Yeah. All the above. Or because I really like all-you-can-eat king crab legs. All the above. Motives can be funny things, can't they? And so how do we, how do we when we think about ministry, we live in the reality that sometimes it can be very difficult. And, and frankly, we don't have time all the, you know, to always be figuring out, well, now why am I doing what I'm doing? And, let me make, and we can, we, introspection is good, but we can become unhealthy navel gazers. About why am I doing what I'm doing? And so how can we work through it? Well, Nehemiah 3 actually helps us. And so actually go to verse 5. First time I read Nehemiah, we're 20 minutes in the sermon. It's terrible. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5, says this. And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. This is the only negative in the entire chapter. The ESV actually does a glorious job translating it because um, if, if I was going to compare it, some of you are more familiar with uh, King James Version or this phrase, you could also read it this way. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles' necks were too stiff to work. Remember hearing of a stiff neck? And it's a pride thing. This work is beneath me. That's, and so when the ESV in our common language says would not stoop to do this, that's exactly what that means. One of my, fir my first paid paycheck job was um, Chuck E. Cheese's, as, as many of you know. And there came a day when someone had a disaster in the men's bathroom at Chuck E. Cheese. I'm a 15-year-old kid. It's my very first job. I'm now old enough to know what happened. The managers all put their heads together, and they tried to get the guy who's hired to be the janitor to go in and clean this disaster, and he would not do it. He's a guy in his 20s. He's like, I'm not, you don't pay me enough to do that. So they come to the 15-year-old kid. Well, I don't know any better. And if you tell me to go clean it, that's what I'm going to go do. So I did. One of the worst experiences of my life. I'm not going to lie to you. And I remember standing there with them in the door laughing while I'm cleaning. Well, now I look back and I realize they would not stoop to do the work. This was beneath them, but not beneath the 15-year-old kid. That was the mindset. These guys, this is beneath them. Now, let's understand this. They may have read this as building a wall. We already know this is about the glory of God. It was beneath them. You know what the root that we really need to think through in the scope of ministry? It's humility. Tekoa is a city about 10 to 11 miles south of Jerusalem, about 18 miles west of the Dead Sea. The word nobles here is a reference to elected leaders. So these guys are not, uh, you know, generationally descended rulers, governors, what have you, but they've been elected officials. And so these are politicians in our common day language. And they've been elected to do this. They're in a city that's some distance away. Rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem is not going to be personally beneficial to them. It's a pride issue. It'd be easy to condemn this kind of arrogance. How could anything God would have for us, how could any ministry that he would put in front of us be beneath us? Honestly, though, it is the dominant theme of Jesus' teaching about ministry is humility. When Jesus talks about the kind of sacrificial serving ministry of others, he puts a towel around himself, puts himself in the place and the position of a house servant, and washes his disciples' filthy feet. What we do is marked by humility. When Jesus teaches about who we minister he spends time with lepers and the demon-possessed and the dispossessed. And they, they he says, let the kids come to me. Let the children come to me. A Samaritan woman that no one else even in her own town wanted to spend time with. Prostitutes, publicans, tax collectors. We are never, ever, ever, ever better than the people we minister to and with. When he wants to teach us who we minister to, it's humility. 
when Jesus talks about our position in ministry. He tells this story contrasting a Pharisee and a publican who would have been like the worst of the worst of the Jews. And the publican is beating his chest in in, in repentance before God about who he is. And the Pharisee is saying, "I, I thank God that I'm not as bad as this guy. Our disposition, our demeanor, our attitude about ministry and about God is one of humility because we recognize who we are as a sinner. We've always gone wrong when we think other sinners are worse than us. It culminates in Philippians chapter 2. We describe it as the mind of Christ. Paul writes it this way, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does the mind of Christ look like practically, though? I love this quote by Anne Graham Lotz about ministry. She says, ministry is giving when you feel like keeping. Ministry is praying for others when you need to be prayed for. Ministry is feeding others when your own soul is hungry. Ministry is living truth before other people even when you can't see results. Ministry is hurting with other people even when your own hurt can't be spoken. Ministry is keeping your word even when it's not convenient. Ministry is being faithful when your flesh wants to run away. If there's no foundation of humility... If there's no motivation of the mind of Christ, there will never be real ministry. Ministry is a community project of gospel light. Nothing will expose your motives more than doing ministry with other people. Why do I do what I do? And so the very foundation has to be humility And now we come to how the building actually takes place, and it's in God's power. You know, there's this tension, an unusual tension in Scripture about who does ministry. (laughs) Like, how does it get done? Does David kill Goliath by his skills or in training or by the power of God? I mean, he's, he's killed bears and lions, and he's obviously been out there practicing with his sling. Um, Nothing better to do while he's watching his sheep. So is it his skills or is it God's power? Is it, is it Moses because he's uh, been trained in Pharaoh's house so he understands administration and organization and then he was a shepherd for 40 years so he knows what it's like. Most, get this, Moses knows what it's like to lead stubborn, resistant, stupid animals in the desert for 40 years. I'm sure that was not preparation. Is it by his skills or is it by God's power? Yes. And God is behind the skills that they've learned. So where's the tension then? And I think the tension comes up in the scope of ministry in two ways. First of all, first, when we are in a place to do ministry where we feel really weak or unskilled, this tension shows up. So is the ministry going to happen and is God's power in it when we have to do something we don't feel gifted at, good at, want to do, like to do, enjoy doing, and usually we can come up with a whole list of all the other people that should be doing it. Because yet God is still calling us into doing ministry. And I think the secondarily is the flip side of that is when we do ministry and we do it out of our own strength. Well, chapter 3 and the building of the wall points us to that truth as well. And so I'm going to read down through the whole chapter now. You're going you're to follow along. We're going to bear together. And if there's any Hebrew scholars in the audience this morning, you're going to give me grace because you... Love Jesus, and it's Sunday morning. It's kind of hard to judge while you're getting preached to. So, um, And I just want you to pay attention to a couple of things as we read through here. Um, it's, got, it's easy to get stumble over the, the names, but I want you to pay attention to just, like, what are they doing? Um, 
you're not going to have time to look up where all this is at. And as I've already told you, we're not even totally sure where everything is at. There are a couple cities named here. Kaliah uh, is about 15 miles southwest of Jerusalem, and Mizpah is about eight miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, just to help you out before I read. And I just want you to, to notice descriptions it gives about them and kind of what they're doing. So with that said, I want to read down through it. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joida, the son of Passiah, and Meshulam, the son of Basodiah, repaired the gate of Yashana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Malatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Harhahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Hermoth, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malchajiah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pehath, Melab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchajiah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hekarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Colhosea, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth Zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, the ruler of half the district of Kaliah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kaliah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the army at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section. From the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Hang in there. Palau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Badiah, the son of Parash. And the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, Zalaf repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. And after him, Malchajai, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Now, that is a lengthy list. But I'll be honest with you. 
I think anyone who has done the ministry of God's work and it's profound enough to show up in God's word deserves to have their name read 2,000, 2,500 years later. I just want to point out a few things with these guys or these folks. They are working out of their comfort zone. You know what all these people have in common? There's little to no, no personal gain from the work. What they all have in common is a commitment to ministry, to commitment to God's glory. And the ministry that was in front of them was building a wall. I wonder what the ministry is that God has in front of you. As we've already seen, Nehemiah's primary appeal was the name of God. It's in derision. As we've already seen, the Tekoite elected officials, their politicians' resistance is pride. Commitment to ministry building isn't about what's comfortable for us, what's convenient to us, or necessarily where we always feel gifted or talented. Resistance to doing ministry, no matter how it is cloaked, is often a covering of pride, a fear of failure, a sense of inadequacy, an insecurity that someone else is better, more capable, and they should do it instead of me. You know who he lists? What's ironic is none of them are listed as builders, architects, or carpenters. You have priests and Levites, goldsmiths, one man, I love it, and his daughters. Merchants, perfumers, strangers, people who don't live in Jerusalem, and other than a few times a year, if they were devout enough to come for festivals, otherwise would never find themselves in Jerusalem because life was just too busy. A goldsmith who works with delicate things is suddenly out there wielding a chisel, hacking away at a massive stone. A perfumer who's used to using a mortar and pestle to construct spices and make aromatic senses and perfumes is out here slinging mortar. A man with his daughters is out there willing to have them hauling heavy stone and putting rocks in just the right places. Merchants are shutting down their shops for two months. You remember what happened in this world when suddenly COVID hit and everybody had to shut down? There is great personal cost to these people to do work that none of them have been trained in or are necessarily skilled at. But they're busy. What's it look like when we do ministry that's outside of our comfort zone? You know, the goldsmiths and the merchants and the perfumers didn't stand back and say, you know what, um, we agree with you, Nehemiah. I'm a goldsmith. I don't know how to build a wall. I'm a perfumer. I really have never hauled stone in my life. I don't know how to use a lever to move rubble. One man who, who must not have had sons didn't say, I don't have boys to help me with the work. He said, I'll bring my daughters. This is more important. They are all out of their comfort zone. What does it look like when we do ministry that's out of our comfort zone? One author, he listed five ways, and I think they're really helpful. It means serving where needed, not always where I'm strong. There's some, I think years and years ago, and this, this has not just happened one time. Um, my family's been sick or something's been going on. And there's a single man that has sent us like fruit baskets. Uh, I'll, I vividly remember when Aaron was born. So that's 12 years ago. Uh, a gentleman in the church, he was, he was single. Um, he was like, I'm not a good cook. And, and he just sent us gift cards. It was stretching. It's, it's like not what they do, but here, let me do this. Ministry. That's just one example I've seen in this church, people doing this. It's, it's serving where there's a need, not where you're always strong. Look, look there's some ministry, it's not just I, I, that I simply can't do. I cannot play the piano or the guitar or any other instrument. I play the radio well. Those are different kinds of skills. But if we're talking about ministry being anything that builds up, you know what I can do? I can, I can make sure that 
my kids where they need to be so my wife can do that. Or I can, I can make sure that the building's open. Or I could, like, and those are just in church life, but in the home, there's ministry. In the neighborhood, there's ministry that can happen. It's serving where there's a need, not where you're strong. It's out of your comfort zone. Serving out of pain, not out of ease. I know. Look, I get it. I get that there's a wisdom that at times that says in stewarding life right now, I can't do that. I get that. Can we? Okay. I, just to be honest with you, I'm a, I get a little annoyed whenever you're preaching truth this way if someone's like, yes, but there's this. So can we just own that? Like, I get it. Sometimes, look, you need to take care of your family first. You need to pay your bills first. I get it. I get it all day long. I agree. Uh, a man that doesn't take care of his own household is worse than a heathen and an infidel. So there you go. There you go. If you're but the vast majority of the time, the vast majority of the time, people, when we don't, when we, 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 it's not me, you, we, when we don't want to be, do ministry because we're hurting and life's hard, the reality is the majority of the time, it has very little to do with proper stewardship and has everything to do with low spiritual endurance. That we're tired. And it's when you're hurting, think of the last time you got fussy with somebody in your house. And you're like, man, yeah, I've got a headache. Like, am I the only one? I got a tummy ache. I don't feel like being nice to you right now. Like, it's hard. Being pushed out of our comfort zone is serving out of pain, not out of ease. Serving like family, not just acquaintances. There's a reason the New Testament is filled with all these companies. I grew up in, look, there's lots I grew up with, the church setting I grew up in, Pentecostal, you know, holy emphasis. Women best not have no earrings, and they don't wear makeup, and uh, we're hardcore, man. Uh, my aunt and uncle got a VCR one time, and I thought they were going straight to hell. I mean, like, whoo. And if you had cable, you probably had a demon, right? So there's lots that was like kind of, not kind of, like, but legalistically heavy-handed out of a misunderstanding of God's holiness. I get, I get that. But one of the things I actually really appreciate is everybody called everybody else like brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. Like, that was just a vernacular for us. It wasn't an ethnic thing. It was just brother. My dad went to everyone. It was brother John's. Brother John's this. Brother John's this. Brother John's this. Uh, sister John's this. And, and it just, and it was vernacular. And I don't know why they did it. And it's just as I moved out of that, I noticed that other places don't necessarily always do that. But the New Testament is filled with these comments like we're family. But I feel like sometimes in ministry, it's easier to think of other people as acquaintances, not as family. I think when we serve out of our comfort zone, we, we serve and we minister with people as family, not just acquaintances. Serve by participation in corporate worship, not as distant, distracted, and selfish. I didn't write any of these. These are copied and pasted. They're not original, but somebody threw the rock and this dog yelped, so I felt like you deserved it too. Man, sometimes I come to worship and my heart is like, all right, now bless me. Rather than the focus is, I, I need to come to glorify God and bless others. Instead of being distant, distracted, or even selfish about it. And there's so many ways we can unpack that. I just don't have time. But the, the number of serving with hospitality, not self-preservation and protection. I love Paul Tripp telling the story about destroying his backyard to put in a skateboard ramp for his son and their neighborhood friends. He's willing to, <laughs> willing to have their sofa destroyed because teen boys, when they flop on your furniture, it's like somebody's taking a bag of cinder blocks and throwing it at your furniture. They don't know what a coaster is. They think that's at Six Flags. You got water rings everywhere. You look at YouTube and videos about rubbing mail on with a hot iron, trying to get water stains out of it. Kids ruin things. That's just the way it is. People ruin stuff, right? I remember taking, and my grandmother wasn't this way, but she had like knickknacks everywhere. Like little breakable knickknacks, really fragile, 
knickknacks. I'm like, why can't she be into like Cabbage Patch dolls or something? Well, just, well then, then that'd be creepy. Like, can you imagine walking in the house and there's like 50 Cabbage Patch dolls staring at you? Look, if you've got those, I haven't been in your house, I'm not shooting at you. Um, like, Lord bless you. But, um, but then I, I remember taking my kids to go see, and I'm, I'm like terrified. My grandma, she probably wouldn't, she, honestly, she probably wouldn't have cared that I got broke. But I am. I was like putting stuff up on shelves. Like, can we not? There's a big glass coffee table. I'm terrified. There are some people, though, that they really care, though. It's they're serving out of your comfort zone. I'm so thankful for our life groups and people have volunteered. There's a hospitality to it. And our homes should be open to others. And it pushes us out of our comfort zone with people. If we never get out of our comfort zone, can I tell you what the cost is? You'll never see God's power really revealed. Now, now obviously, then I have to prove that. And so real ministry is done in the strength of the Spirit. Let me ask it this way. If you had a fire or flood and you needed to rebuild your house, house is down, you got nothing. All you got is the foundation. <clears throat> and so the house has got to be rebuilt. Insurance company says, get me a couple estimates. Um, you got good homeowners insurance, we'll build it. Uh, and so co- company A you bring in, they're called Quality Construction, they're licensed, they're bonded, they've got 25 years experience, five-star Yelp reviews, five-star Angelus reviews, everybody knows these guys are amazing. They come and they look at you, they say they've got the freedom, they've got the crews that can come to work. Um, they say, we'll get you back in your home, livable, six months, start breaking ground to finish, six months you're going to be in your house. And you're living... Right at 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 the day's end, cooking on the little stovetop. Six months sounds like an eternity to you. And then you get Company B, somebody else. You heard them. You found them on Facebook or got some scam email. You check them out, and it's called Harry Homeowner Home Builders, and it's run by this dude that used to run a Seven Eleven, and he got sick of, of of mixing Slurpee mix, and he realized he kind of liked putting IKEA furniture together, so he's opened his own home building company. And he comes out and he looks at it and he says, you know what? Two months, we got you in. Who do you go with? Now, if you go with Harry Homeowner, we got a whole other conversation later. You go with quality home construction. And you're like, six months must be how long it's going to take. And this dude doesn't know what he's doing. Go back to mixing Slurpees. These are 39 foot tall, eight foot thick walls, and you need two and a half miles of them. Who do you get to build them? Goldsmiths, perfumers, daughters, and priests? Not the last time I checked. If it was left up to me, you know what I'd say? Goldsmiths and perfumers, we need you to make some hefty donations because we're hiring some wall builders out of Egypt to come build these walls. That's all they do is build walls. We want them to come. That's what I do. In other words, when I think about ministry, well, the way I think about it and the way I would be prone is let me find the best possible people all the time for the best possible jobs. And it also lets me off the hook when there's ministry that's needed, but I don't feel very strong in because I just start looking around and, all right, well, then Jesus clearly has somebody else for that job. And I will look anywhere but in the mirror. But what happens Chapter 6, 15 through 16 is what happens. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Now, (laughs) Nehemiah clearly knows none of us are wall builders, so he includes the next verse. When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. I don't know how long it was supposed to take to build two and a half miles of 40-foot high, eight-foot thick walls, but it sure enough wasn't 52 days. They are shocked and astonished at what has happened because God built the walls through people that were never qualified to be wall builders. We will never see the power of God if we refuse to minister out of our comfort zones. I don't know how it happened. Like, that's an amazing reality. I did construction for a number of years, did framing, drywall, these kinds of acoustic ceilings. 
using all kinds of math that I couldn't pass in school to try to figure out the layout of things with a bunch of literally convicted felons who worked out their budget based on their drinking and pot-smoking habits. And I remember us going in at times to go in and build a firewall. That's a big wall. You have a big room. You section down the middle. Then you lay out. You chalk line it. And you, you read the, the blueprints. And you build the walls. And you, you put the drywall on the walls. You put the ceiling in. You walk out. And it's an amazing feeling to go from empty space to full space. And I will never forget one time my boss bid a job. And he told them. It was very much like that illustration I gave you. He said, it's going to take this long to do the job. They said, no, we're going to hire these other guys. And they called my boss two weeks later. Because they had just destroyed the space and these people didn't have a clue what they were doing. And the time it took is the time it took. And so when he's saying this for everyone to recognize, why then is it that God is using goldsmiths, perfumers, daughters, Levites, merchants, and priests? Because it's about his glory, not their skill level. Ministry is all about his glory. In fact, that has to be the motivation for what we're doing. We can finish now by coming full circle. In Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the city of God, the capital of Israel, the location of the temple, and the place where 500 years later, Jesus Christ will ride into it as the fulfillment of the king that is better than David. It's for the glory of God. Jesus is the light of the world. He's intent on shining into the darkness we all, li- we all live in. And when he left, he called his people to be shining lights by good works, by ministry. Good works that point others to his glory. They built this city for God's derision, and it was for God's glory, and it became a shining light. Look what God can do. So one last truth. It's hard to get and stay motivated in doing ministry. Ministry is hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's thankless. It's hard to see fruit sometimes. It's exhausting. It's costly. And all that is anticipated in the text that was read this morning. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The King James actually translated as provoke. It it literally means to poke people. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is not a sermon and this is not a law about checking church attendance. I want you to focus though on the community aspect of it. If you want to get weary in doing ministry and want to give up, try to do it alone. Do it disconnected from a community. God has designed community to help encourage you, to help train you. I had a dad and a grandfather that were all about teaching a solid work ethic. They taught me things like do your best work because God sees it even if no one else ever does. When I used to frame up walls, this would ring in my ears all the time because when you put in the corner stud, the easiest thing to do is you left it hanging loose, you ran the sheet of drywall, you slapped the corner stud up against it, and you just run screws through the drywall into the stud, and you were good to go. But by law and code, it's supposed to be screwed at the top and bottom. Nobody does that because it takes forever. And I remember the first time the mechanics taught me, this is the way you do it, don't worry about that. Like the internal guilt I felt was ridiculous because no one would ever see or know but God. But my dad and grandfather had drilled it into me. Work every time like God saw what you were doing. Didn't matter if no one else ever sees it. Work for God, not somebody else. They drilled things into me like when you take a break. I remember my grandfather teaching me this when we were re-roofing our house. We sat down to take a break because it's hard work. I knew then I didn't ever want to be a roofer. And my grandfather set a timer on his watch. And when the timer went off, we got up and went back to work. Because he said, all of us are prone to be lazy. And if you don't set a timer, guess what? You won't get back to work. So take a break, set a timer, get back it, get back to it. Do it right the first time. Work hard before you play hard. No one's done till everyone's done. What would those 52 days have been like? 
The city would have been filled with the noise of construction, hammering, chiseling, yelling, grunting, mixing of mortar, laughing, cheering, and more. You think one of these guys at some point, six foot up on the wall, didn't take some mortar and sling it down and hit the guy in the head with it? Guaranteed. You think they didn't decide to take a break to have lunch? And what would have happened when they took their break at 9.15 in the morning, but the guys on the other side of the city aren't taking their break till 9.30? They would have sat down, and do you know what they would have heard? Work. It's a community project. How do we provoke one another to love and good works? One of the ways we provoke one another to love and good works is by working. And it encourages your heart to be reminded you're not alone. You're not alone. So maybe your work is different than my work, but we're not alone. You're working hard, I'm working hard, and we're working for God's glory. And sometimes we get to do the work, and it's visibly together, and it's joyous that way, and it's fun. And sometimes you're doing your stuff all week, I'm doing my stuff all week, they're doing their stuff all week, and we get to come together on Sunday. Don't neglect to meet together, because some of that is as you come together, you get to do corporate ministry work together. There's ministry here in this location, but preeminently, can I just tell you, like Nehemiah's day, it's intended to encourage you about ministry. You're working hard, keep working. Ministry is a community project of gospel light. And so when Jesus tells us the truth and children sing a song, and it's important, this little light of mine, my little light feels so flickering and small and tiny. And so why does Jesus talk about a city set in the hole? Because he's never intended for it to just be your little light. He's intended for it to be surrounded by everybody else's lights. And how great is the light of God's glory when his people work together for his kingdom. Father, we ask that you would 